This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Time to make the donuts. Time to make the coffee. Making I've been, coffee. I've been thinking about it, and I think our show needs more catchphrases. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah. like, do the so Bartman. Yeah, do the Bartman's good. Like, time to make the donuts. We could start every episode that way, like, not have to worry about the intro anymore. Um, that's a one spicy meatball, I could say. Not the mama. You, not the mama. When you say something that's... That's like surprising. I could be like, that's a one spicy meatball. Okay. And then if you try to come at me for a dumb thing, I said, I'll just go, not the mama. That, or what if I did, did I do that? Ooh, that's a good one. Jeez. <laughs> Chili dog. That's the same actor. Did you know that? Yes, I knew that. That, Steve, that Stefan that. Urkel also I, played Sonic the Hedgehog. Everybody knows that Malcolm, what's his name? No. Wait, who? Jaleel what White. Jaleel White, yeah. No. <laughs> Time to make the donut. <laughs> not the mama. We got to workshop not the mama. I feel like it doesn't. It's not as applicable. I don't know where to put it yet. I'm mm-hmm. a fan, though. Sure. Yeah, let's just keep let's keep working on it. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I'm all out of catchphrases, but you know what I'm not out of yet, Andrew? What's that? T-shirts. What's the deal with them t-shirts? So we got like 24 hours, if you're listening to this on Monday, the clock November is ticking. 28th, Do not sleep. 2016. Uh, we have like less than 24 hours to sell some dang t-shirts. So some of you already bought some. The fine folks at Cotton Bureau hooked us up. We got two shirts, uh, Try to Be Happy shirt and an Overdue Logo shirt. And there's three different colors for each. And you can just go to bit.ly slash overdue shirts. And you can check it out. Um, it supports the show. It's a thing we've been trying to do for a long time. And the way that they run it means that we only have a limited time to sell them. So, like, go get it. Yeah, you or, you order them, and then they once they know how many they have to print, they print them, and they ship them all off. So all the shirts are getting printed, but, like, the more we sell, the more of a cut we get. And um, <laughs> with all of a uh, – listen, man, like, let's, got, let's not – Got to make the donuts. <laughs> let's not – got to make the donuts. We – um. We are hoping to be able to donate some of our merch proceeds to to some charities that we'll talk about uh, later when we're ready to talk about them. We we've got we've narrowed it down to a couple. I think like something kids and books related is <laughs> is the general. <laughs> those thought. are those are the things that we Google when we're looking for what charity to give our money to. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, order the T-shirts in the next twenty four hours. Do it now because we don't know. When we'll be able to do this again, um, and then we'll have more on the mugs and the tote bags and the stickers. Everything is here and everything's proofed and everything looks good. We just have to take the pictures and set it all up. So that should be sometime this week too. Um, but yeah, bit.ly/slash/overdue shirts. Get there. 
Now, we wanted to do that at the beginning of the show because, you know, we're talking about Nicole Krause's The History of Love this week. And I certainly can take a couple, like, days to get through one of my podcasts, just, like, mm-hmm. depending on commutes. So I personally apologize for, like, doing that big ad up front, which we don't normally do. I don't apologize. I feel great about it. Not the mama, but I... <laughs> felt like we needed to do that there so that if anybody's kind of doing the piecemeal listening this week that they got it out of the way anyway let's talk about this book that i read andrew could you tell me a little bit about nicole kraus while i look up which of our illustrious patreon donors recommended this book to us i can do that uh so nicole kraus was born in 1974 and she's best known for the three novels that she's written so she wrote a man walks into a room in 2002 um, the History of Love, which is this one in 2005, and Great House in 2010. Um, she's also, uh, she did in 2015, she signed a $4 million deal with HarperCollins to publish another novel and a book of short stories. Um, I'm not sure when those are coming out, but uh, yeah, they are They are coming and she's, she's still trucking. Um, she was born in Manhattan and grew up on Long Island. So she's a New York native. She still lives there in uh, Brooklyn, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, History of Love won the William Soroyan International Prize for writing, and both it and Great House were shortlisted for a lot of other awards. Yeah, I think Great House was National Book Award, I think. It was mm-hmm. pretty cool. She was um, she was married to um, Jonathan Safran Foer, or however you pronounce his name. Is that That's how you pronounce his name? It, yeah. For, I just say Jonathan Safran Four. Four, like you're playing Four, golf. that works. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was, he, you might know him because he wrote Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and some other stuff. That's, he the, also, that's the 9-11 one. Well, he also wrote Everything is Illuminated, and one of those draws a lot of comparisons to this book. Let me look it up real quick. It's extremely loud, like you said. Yeah, um, um, people, people were, um, not people, but like reviewers note that they... Like these first two novels that they wrote, at least like came out around the same time, and they dealt with a lot of the same themes. And so, some people have have dubbed their marriage sort of collaborative, which mm. is interesting. Neat. Not quite Alona Andrews style collaborative in that you're both writing the same <laughs> book, but maybe you're bouncing around the same ideas at home at the same time. Uh, they did have two kids. They did also separate in 2014. Sure. Uh, so there's that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, the movie rights to Man Walks Into a Room were optioned by Richard Gere, which I bring up only because, like, remember Mandy Moore and how we wondered how she was doing, and then everybody was like, oh, one of my friends, like, runs a yoga class that she goes to. Like, how's Richard Gere? Where is he? The last I heard of Richard Gere was the movie Chicago, which I saw in high school. The movie version of the musical Chicago? <laughs> yes. The Oscar Whoa. award winning adaptation of They don't call it an Oscar award winning. It's it's Academy Award winning. Not the mama. The Oscar Award you winning. Got, I hate that one. You got, I got it. I hate that catchphrase. Uh where he sang putting on not putting on the Ritz. Razzle Dazzle. That's he young sang, Frankenstein. He sang Razzle Dazzle. And uh, that's the last I've heard of him. Have you? Does is he like? Does he is he like Johnny Depp? Does he have a band know, or like, something? Like I haven't I haven't seen him 
in any movies either breaking up a wedding at the last minute <laughs> or having his wedding broken up at the mm-hmm, last minute. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like 90% of his output. So okay. Richard Gere, wherever you are, I hope you're doing okay. Drop us a line. Sure. Um, what else? Uh, other things that I thought are interesting for Krauss, um, her parents, she, uh, her mother was a, was listed as British Jewish and her father's American Jewish. This is from Wikipedia. Um, though her father spent some time in Israel, her parents, her grandparents are from Germany and Ukraine and Hungary and Slonim, which is a city in Poland or former Poland, now Belarus, that mm-hmm. factors into this book. Um, History Love is dedicated to her grandparents, so that I think it's worth mentioning that heritage uh, as we go into this. She also was a poet first as she got into yeah, writing. She, she started writing poetry, and she actually won some undergrad prizes mm-hmm. for poetry at Stanford, which is where she did undergrad. Yeah, she went on um, to Oxford and the, the Courteau Institute. In 1992, she met the Nobel laureate poet Joseph Brodsky, who's like a Russian-American poet that I actually don't know anything about. So now I have an assignment there. This Um, is the line in the sand where our research stops. Yeah, where it's like, oh, I don't know about that. I will look some stuff up about Jonathan Safran for, but otherwise I'm not going (laughs) to. This Russian poet that isn't mentioned in the book, I don't need to know How many degrees of separation do we need? (laughs) Not that many, apparently. Uh, I wanted to make sure we mentioned the poet thing because that does factor into her style of writing a lot. And certainly um, the like book within a book that crops up in the history of love. I don't think like that came out of the same writer that was writing poetry before she became a novelist. Well, and I think it I think it was of this book that I read someone describe it as like magical realism. Yeah. Mhm. Which mm-hmm. feels very like floaty and and conducive to sort of a poetic writing style or a poetic kind of way of conveying ideas. Certainly. And uh she's said that she doesn't take a lot of notes. While she writes, she has like two types of notes that she takes. One where she kind of like maps out how characters know each other. Both this book and uh, Great House have like parallel narratives where characters have different connections. So she kind of maps out just like a Seinfeld episode. And it all comes back at the end. Uh, (laughs) And then she kind of maps out whether or not they're going to connect, but not in too much detail. And then she'll also map out just like literal mathematical facts. She needs to know if she's hopping around in time and people got on the same boat, like she needs to know what date that was kind of thing. Okay, So she doesn't take notes, notes really, except for when she does take notes. Well, she, she's saying in her interviews, she's, she doesn't do it as she's writing. She doesn't do it when she gets into the act of writing the book. She will kind of map out it space map it out spatially, and not like take too many overt like plot notes. She'll just kind of see where the story takes her. See, I think like plot notes, you just call that a draft a lot of the time. Well, yeah, I feel like just write the the art, the practice of writing prose is sort of like taking notes in a way. It's not like she's sitting down and doing the outline. Or like starting from the end and working backwards like a mystery writer. Or True. Something, but. She she did also say that she doesn't like sharing her work while it's in progress. 
Nobody um, likes doing that. Well, this is this is literally a, nobody likes doing that. True. This is a quote that I, I thought was pretty interesting. The idea dies when I try to articulate it, and I have to try very hard to resuscitate it. I never took any writing classes, which at least in America require quite a lot of conversation about the work in progress. And so I never got into the habit of sharing my work that way. Only after I've reached the end of something do I feel ready to seek someone else's opinion. And I just what I didn't take any writing classes in not any novel writing class. I took some playwriting classes, but I can't hear people bemoan writing classes without thinking of like your seminar experiences. Andrew. Oh, God, which, <laughs> which we've, know, talked we've talked about, about already. Before, so there's back in the, the foggy past of this show. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I, I guess I don't mean to be taking apart what she says about what her style is, but it sounds like she doesn't like have a particular style but because she's doing an interview she has to sound like she does. that's a good point that's a good point that's fair like if you just sit down and you write like that's cool you don't have to like make it a thing that's true <laughs> i don't know that's i like okay cool. i'm done being a jerk for like for the moment for the moment you I can be a jerk right to me for the rest to, of this show that's fine. on this particular point i'm done being a jerk okay is there anything else that you uncovered that you want to share um, no, I have some quotes from like reviews or interviews that I found, but I'll bring them up like as they as they make sense. But okay. yeah, she's she's I don't know. I don't have I didn't have an end to that sentence. I thought I was going to have another fact. <laughs> and I, just... I did. I did note from her website that uh, like at the beginning of her bio quotes, the New York Times saying that she is, quote, one of America's most important novelists. And like, that's a great accolade. But, yo, that's a thing to live up to. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're important. I Make it the, happen. Just the act of writing a novel. It feels like. This like you're starting from a place where you presume that what you have to say is important enough that it needs to be a novel already. And I'm I think that gets backed up if you're like trying to take yourself too seriously. Sure. Um, I don't know. Like like there was a I could levy that critique at many podcasts. Yeah. Often sometimes ours. (laughs) there's There's a mini review of her first novel in the New York Times review of her second novel. Mm-hmm. And it is, and it sort of it critiques it for being too like too conscious of being a novel and like a little too like inflated. And it says it's an intelligent book, but for all its self conscious hyper modernity, very cautious and therefore unexciting. Mm. So maybe like she was trying so hard to write a capital N novel that she forgot to write like a good book. <laughs> well, and that could be. A result no, this of was, her. This was a negative-ish review yeah. of this book too. And I, so that I've read that. Re- yeah, this. I read that review, and I don't quite agree with all the points. I think it's a little, little unjust. But I also wouldn't be surprised if some of the like overtly novelish parts of the novels are due to her moving over from another medium, where like Maybe. she's attracted by character and attracted by language, and what sets her work apart is that it's like not quite a traditional novel in some ways not that there is a traditional novel anymore um but that also means she kind of has to lean into and bump up against some tropes of of novel storytelling so Mm -hmm. uh let's get into this book there are let's get in there time to make donuts (laughs) i caramba (laughs) andrew i'm home is that wait is that one Kind of. It's like halfway to one. Okay, cool. 
Um, so the history of love is about three primary characters and there's like some plotty stuff that happens and we'll, we'll kind of dip in and out of it as I talk about these three characters. Um, they are Leopold Gursky. Okay. Alma Singer. And I will dub the third character the book, The History of Love. Um, (laughs) What is that? Are you going to tell me what that means later? Well, so apparently this is a a quality that gets shared with her next book, uh, Great House, is that like Great House has this desk that gets passed around between different characters and it becomes like a way for these stories to connect and center around something. Uh, This book... The book that I read called The History of Love mm-hmm. is about a bunch of characters who have either written or read a book called The History of Love. Hmm. And who wrote it, what it's about, and what it means to the people who've read it is basically the through line of the whole novel. Um Okay. Is I've have you ever read any books like that? Because I was I started reading this thing and I was reminded of a book called Shadow of the Wind, which is a Spanish novel I read like ten years ago. Um, are where you just like, are you asking if I've read something where the I don't know where there where there's a book within a book that's yeah supposed to be the book that you're reading, kind of yeah or what. Yeah, a little bit. I definitely have, and I think I actually have for the show, and I just, I cannot, for the life of me, on the spot, I cannot think of the name of the book. That's okay. Shadow mm-hmm. of the Wind is one that jumps out at me because it's it's set in, like, turn-of-the-century Spain um, and is about this, like, mysterious magical novel that, you know, un- both undoes and illuminates various characters' lives. So this book... Um, is about how these two characters, Leo and Alma, kind of eventually connect on their quests in relationship to this book. So let's start with Leopold, because he's the first character that we meet. And we meet him in the modern day in New York City, uh, but it, let's start from his like beginning. He's from Eastern Europe. He's from this town of Slonim, um, which, as I said, is a Polish town that would later become Belarus, um, a lot of Jews in Be- in this town were sent to a nearby ghetto uh, during the Holocaust. Um, several thousand were killed. And so he actually ends up escaping at age 20. Um, and his, his family is gone. Like he is, mm-hmm. he is, his like mother sends him off into the woods and he ends up having to like eat bugs and stuff to survive. Ew. Yeah, it's bugs. That's my least favorite part of the Lion King when Simba has to eat those bugs. bugs. <laughs> oh, man. I, and they don't like talk about it again, no. as I recall. Like a lot after that first little bug eating scene, like he doesn't go back to his home, and everyone's like, "Man, Simba, why are you eating?" Like, you could get meat again. Like, why are you eating all these bugs? And you'd think that he, like, maybe wouldn't be good at hunting. Because, like, the people he would hunt are his friends, and he's been eating bugs the whole time. The female lions are are the hunters. Oh, good point. No, good point. Good point. Yeah. You're right. He does... Dropping a little knowledge bomb on you. Thank you. Boom. He is That's a one spicy meatball. (laughs) (laughs) 
Zach Attack. Um, that would work if one of us was named Zach. Maybe it could be like Craig, Craig Attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The new segment on the show, Craig Attack. Craig Attack. Um, but before Leopold left Sloaneem, uh, when he was ten, he met a he met a girl named Alma, uh, and he fell in love with her. They were on the playground. He was like going into class, and she was like holding a moth in her hands. And he's like, "What are you doing with that moth? What wouldn't you want a butterfly?" And she's like, "This moth is pretty cool. Like you could take a look at it." And he's like, "I don't want to look at it." And he tries to close her hand, and he like accidentally squishes it. Moths are easy to kill, and then they're just like filled with dust, like the moth (laughs) dust. I know. You'd think, you'd think, having watched The Lion King, there would be like juicy bug juice in there, but no, no. it's just dust. It's just a little sentient dust creature. Not sentient, but well, in as much as they need to be. Um, And from then on, he knew he was in love with her after he killed her moth. After he accidentally killed her moth in her hands. Uh, Cool. There's a couple. Good start. Yeah, there's a couple pages where he like waxes poetic about then he just like noticed her. And then like because she was the first girl that he noticed in that way, it kind of takes off, becomes this thing. And he spends the next 10 years. He meets her when he's 10 uh, before he has to run away. He spends several years like writing books for her to try and prove his love to her and get her to be with him. Um, And you get these like passages, you know, sprinkled throughout the book. I'm giving you information that is kind of sprinkled throughout the book as their background. Did he ever try just like asking her out? Uh, He does like, I'm just, I'm trying to decide what kind of creepy this is because it's either like the pining from afar and hoping she'll just magically notice you kind of creepy or it's the she told him no and he's going to win her over with his books kind of creepy. Uh, no, it's not quite that. It's um, so this is and this passage where I can answer this question starts with like a zinger of a quote that kind of tells you what some of this prose is like. Once upon okay. a time, there was a boy who loved a girl and her laughter was a question he wanted to spend his whole life answering. Like, that's a that's a line and a half that's, if I've ever dec- heard one. That's a decent line. Um, when they were 10, he asked her to marry him. When they were 11, he kissed her for the first time. When they were 13, they got into a fight, and for three weeks, they didn't talk. When they were 15, she showed him the scar on her left breast. Their love was a secret. Ooh. They told no one. He promised he would never love another girl as long as he lived. What if I die, she asked. Even then, he said. So they're like, they're in love. They're friends. And it's the first for both of them, and they're trying to figure it out. Okay. Um, they do consummate their teenage love. Interesting. Um, when they this are... just got interesting. <laughs> That's your catchphrase, Craig. Attack. This just got interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, just lots of. I'm writing these all down. Okay, these good. Are really good catchphrase. Good. I'm glad that you are. Eventually, you won't have to do the show anymore. We can just like thread together catchphrases. Ooh, that's for good. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> that's how the show will continue after we expire. Um, mm-hmm. and. So they they get down, and then we're reaching the point where people are hearing rumors about what's happening uh, in parts of Eastern Europe. And Alma's family sends her to America to keep her safe, and she's pregnant at the time. And he's obviously heartbroken, um, and when he runs away to eat bugs and stuff... He ends up finding his way to America. 
He finds Alma, this is several years later, who has given birth to his son Isaac, but married the like son of the factory owner that she works for. Okay. And he's never going to be with her. And uh-huh. Isaac doesn't know that he's his dad. Leo is his dad because he's like five or something. <laughs> and for the rest of Leo's life, he like keeps tabs on Isaac. And Isaac becomes this like great writer. And Leo hopes that that's kind of because of him. And that's that's the relationship that we kind of walk into at the beginning of the book. Um, Leo in the New World, you know, in America in like, you know, 50s, I guess, uh, America. I don't think that's when he makes it over. Um, he becomes a locksmith okay. under his cousin's tutelage. And there's much made of the fact that he is basically ensuring that he can there's like a metaphor of perpetual freedom to his work as a locksmith which i think is okay. interesting sure um so as we actually meet leopold in this book he's he's close to death like he's i think he's in his late 70s at this point he's had a heart attack he's living by himself not really sure where he gets any money um He's not really sure, and he. This is like a really interesting, like character note. He wants to be seen, like as an elderly person with like no contacts. He just wants people to know that he exists. That describes the behavior of so many people. So (laughs) here's here's what he does, Andrew. I try to make a point of being seen. Sometimes when I'm out, I'll buy a juice even though I'm not thirsty. If the store is crowded, I'll go so far as dropping my change all over the floor. I'll get down on my knees. It's a big effort to get down on my knees and an even bigger bigger effort to get up. And yet, maybe I look like a fool. I'll go into the athlete's foot and say, what do you have in sneakers? The clerk will look me over like the poor schmuck that I am and direct me to the one pair of rock ports they carry. Now I'll say I have those already, and then I'll make my way to the Reeboks and pick out something that doesn't even resemble a shoe and ask for it in size 9. The kid will look again more carefully. I never actually buy. All I want is not to die on a day when I went unseen. It's just like, woof, Leo. Yeah, that's like, that's, I get it. I do get it because you do, like, I don't know, they're, I would not want to be seen in the bad way. Like nobody wants to, nobody wants to be someone's story where like they go home and they're like, "Oh, I was in the AMP and I saw the biggest jerk, and he had a big hole in his pants and he looked like an idiot." Like nobody wants to be the guy in that story. (laughs) But it sounds like being in one of those "Man, I had the weirdest day today" stories is more important to this guy than than not like inconveniencing people or being a weirdo. Yeah, well, and this is, he's also someone who had to flee his homeland after his family died. And yeah, the, well, the yeah. only woman that he loved that he wrote uh, like books to and books about remarried and had a son who doesn't know he exists. Mm-hmm. So he's like living this life of being unseen. Um Sure. I don't know. It just that's one of those things that that is one of those things from this book that will stick with me for for a good long time. I can see that. Yeah. Um, it what Krauss does is she does try to push it to its absurd limits. And uh, 
I don't know that all of her humor in this book lands, but this is like a general scenario that I found pretty interesting is he goes to one of those like art classes where you get sketched and volunteers to get like nude sketched as like a 77 year old man. And that's just not a thing I've ever heard of before, which is kind of novel. If you want to give some art student some practice, though, like, (laughs) there you go. That's probably good. Like, there you go. That's the Kobayashi Maru of sketch classes. (laughs) Like, how do you do it The only way to win is to cheat. It's true. Is to take a picture of him and, like, trace over it or something. I've never done that on either side. Of the of the curtain, been a naked art man or drawn a naked art man. I have done neither. And, okay, I, and I, I think I, I've known some people who've done both, but I've not. I definitely know someone who's been a model. Sure, our friend, our friend Ben was a model for a yeah. while, which was interesting. Yeah, because he's not the he's not. It's not a thing I would expect of him. You guys don't know our friend Ben, but <laughs> trust me. Um. <laughs> But yeah, like I'm not I'm not going to be on the other. I'm not going to be on the artist end of it because listen, I'm just like I'm wasting somebody's time. Mm, I'm probably mm. wasting the instructor's time. I'm wasting a perfectly good easel and canvas. Like I'm just not it's not going to it's not going to be good what sure. I do with that with that information. <laughs> yeah, I've never been good at art like drawing art. I wanted to, but then, like, once I was, it was the same as when I tried to play guitar. Like, once I wasn't, like, instantly good at it, I gave up. Yeah, dog. (laughs) And so deprived the world of my, like, surely the amazing talent that I would have been (laughs) had I stuck with it. I think you got farther at guitar than I did, and I I got to, like. I can at least play some guitar I got to chords are tough for my tiny fingers, and I just bowed out. Like I couldn't handle. No, it. I like I played enough where people thought I could play guitar, and then I could get up to the level where I was exposed as the fraud that I was. <laughs> when someone said, "Andrew, you could play the guitar," and you were like, "Yeah, Not today." Nope, my f- I got have a thing, and my fingers just fell off. That finger. Oh man, you can't. I'm on the phone right now, so you can't see. But and then you drop some baby carrots on the floor, and you're like, "Oh man, that sound! That was my fingers. They f- don't my eat fingers my are fingers." Gone. God, oh, no. My fingers are delicious. Uh, so I'll see you later. See ya. Good song. Good set today, bro. Uh, <laughs> so that's who Leo is in the modern day. He has a friend above him named Bruno. They have kind of this like bang on the radiator if you're still alive pact where oh, okay. they will like yell up to the other person to say are you alive and you're supposed to tap twice if yes and one if no. Man, that's that's cute until someone doesn't tap back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and then the arc that Leo sets out on in the present day is that he has written this book called Words for Everything, I believe. And he's he's tried to get it to his son, Isaac, in the hopes that his son will read it before uh, Leo passes away. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he finds a news article that his son, Isaac, has passed away himself at the age of 60. And Leo sets off on a quest to, like, f- learn about him at all and find out if he actually played a role in his son's life. So that's, like, Leo's deal. Um. Alma is uh, starts, I think we first meet her when she's 11, but she's like 14 or 15 for most of the book. 
and she is, you know, born and raised in modern day New York. Her chapters are formatted differently than Leo's. This is some of the stuff, Andrew, that you might have noticed in reviews talking about it being like aware that it's a novel. Okay. Um, like how did you how does what form does this take? So usually? I I read the Kindle edition, which uh when there's some like occasional bouts of Hebrew, they do that thing where they like right, clearly sure. scanned yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. printed book and like put in a tiny JPEG. I don't know if you've seen that. Um but her chapters are broken up into like mini chapters that have little title headings. So if it's it's all in first person, but if Alma has a chapter, you'll get um, little like numbered title headings. It actually reminds me of a play a poet turned playwright Sarah Rule, uh, who does it R U H L, who does a lot of magical realism, and actually reminds me a lot of Nicole Krauss in some of her writing. Um, and has like every scene has like a name and sometimes they're very short and sometimes they're very long but the early chapters of Alma you learn that she lives with her mom she has a younger brother um who is named Emmanuel but he goes by the name Bird because he because on his sixth birthday he jumped like out of a window or something and like got a scar and so he goes by bird and I, I feel like there are le- there are less dramatic ways to get that nickname <laughs> uh-huh. you know like you're uh, the guy who flips everyone off all the time or yeah something. <laughs> well you're six so that's like a different <laughs> time to get that if you're nickname. six like that's it's even it's edgier it's even like more notable <laughs> all i want to be no all i want to do is be seen so at age six i just started flipping just everybody started off flipping everybody off um, she lives with her mother, who primarily does work translating books out of other languages, mostly Spanish. Um, her father, Alma's father, passed away when she was seven. Mm-hmm. So, like a year or two after Bird was born, so Bird doesn't really know, didn't really know him at all. And Alma is named after every girl in the book, The History of Love. So, we're going to get to the third character in a few minutes but it's worth noting that just it's like a lot of vignettes and disconnected stories so every character is every like woman is named Alma um after of course the woman that Leo loved like even if they're different even if they're different, different people different women in the okay cool. yes um every like object of a protagonist affection so yeah yeah, yeah. uh that book was like the thing that brought Alma's parents together. So they named her after that, which is cool. Um, here's like an example of that poetic gut punch at work in Alma's chapter headings. So you get a couple chapters where like these mini chapters where she's explaining who she is. She tells a couple brief anecdotes about her and her brother and how she relates to her mom. She's really interested in her dad's wilderness survival books and then her dad's this like brilliant engineer. And then here's just like chapter nine of her first section of the book. He liked to cook and laugh and sing, could start a fire with his hands, fix things that were broken, and explain how to launch things into space. But he died within nine months. Like he couldn't, he couldn't beat pancreatic cancer, and he could do all these other amazing dad things and mm-hmm. amazing person things. Hmm. And there's no. That's the first chapter of hers that like doesn't have any subtext like or like residual text in it it's just the title and then you move on to mini chapter 10 okay Um, so that's no that's kind of playing with form um 
Alma also loves the guy who wrote The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Um, I know you. I like that weird affected. Like when we both do <laughs> French, we always go right to like oh, 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 It's a cross between um, the it's the cro- it's a cross between Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast <laughs> and the put upon voice that Alex Trebek does whenever he pronounces French. Okay, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Uh. So, I know we're probably going to have to do that book at some point, Andrew. I know you saw the movie, but we should do The Little Prince at some point. Uh, okay. Because I think people would enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Children's Book Week or something. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Um, we don't need to talk about her brother too much for the rest of the show, except that he, instead of retreating into um, books or novels or anything, you know, he's a couple years younger than her, he retreats into faith. And uh, he becomes his only friend, actually, is the janitor of his Hebrew school. And uh, Bird, I know, yeah, he's not supposed to be like a happy character. Um, Bird comes to believe that he is one of the 36 Lamed Vavniks, uh, or holy people, any of which could, and this is a real thing, any of which could turn up uh, to be the Messiah. They can't tell anybody about it, but they might be the Messiah. So his whole arc is like slowly but surely telling everyone that he is one of these, which mm-hmm. actually is not the point at all. Um, and one of the major like plot points in towards the end of the book is him like actually doing something selflessly in hopes that he can like prove to God that he's actually one of them. Um, so he's 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 a weird little side character in the book. Mm-hmm. Um Alma does have a relationship with a uh, Russian boy living in New York named Misha, uh, who she met through an actual Russian pen pal that she had. Did you have pen pals growing up, Andrew? Like, did your school ever make you do pen pals? Not to any extent that I remember. Like, I'm sure that we tried, but yeah, it was like never, it was not... It was not a thing where I had a pen pal who I thought about a lot or like wrote targeted letters to all the time. I have a distinct memory of doing a handwritten letter to someone. I don't know who uh, in the computer lab of all places Mm -hmm. in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Like, let's write to our pen pals sitting in front of a computer. But you got to write it on a piece of paper. (laughs) They, like later somebody would have the idea to combine those and that's how email was invented <laughs> that's how email but... was invented thanks al gore uh yeah i was just wondering because that this is like i read the passage of pen pals i was like oh yeah i kind of remember that but it mm-hmm. just as alma moves on to a, meeting an actual living person uh i sub- also did not dwell on pen pals yeah um th- this kid misha kind of becomes her on again off again romantic partner um they drift together they drift apart it it's not the point of the book but her discovering what romance might mean for her is is a parallel to leo uh the big plot stuff for her is that her mom receives a mysterious letter in the mail andrew from a guy named jacob marcus who wants Alma's mom to translate a copy of the history of love that he has 
um, from Spanish into English so that he can read it. He's not feeling well. Um, and he would like, his mother read it to him as he was growing up and he would like someone to translate it for him. He's going to pay them a substantial amount of money. And of course, Alma, who's eager to see her mom happy after her dad died, like turns it into a sleepless in Seattle situation where she starts like (laughs) intercepting mail and like posing as her mom in letters to get more information as to who this guy is. Parents, talk to your kids. Don't let them sleepless in Seattle, you. <laughs> Don't let them you've got mail you either. Don't let them like you've got mailing is like a worse kind of sleepless in Seattleing. So just don't do either of them. Yeah. Uh, maybe let them parent trap you if they are twins. Let yeah, let them parent trap you. Um yeah, like I guess there weren't kids involved in when Harry met Sally, which is the best rom-com. <laughs> And like, don't even like, don't at me. But <laughs> when Harry Met Sally is the best rom com. Before this episode of the show, I don't think I ever would have guessed that you would tell me what the best rom com was. When Harry Met Sally, dude, it's not that hard. But like, I didn't think you'd have an opinion. I do, and it's when Harry Met Sally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's pretty good. It's, it's a pretty good movie. I'll have what he's. I don't like I, the central, like the core of the movie, where they're like, "Oh, yeah, women and women can't be friends without sleeping together." I think that's garbage. But like, the movie's a good movie. It is a good. It's movie. a good movie. It's a good that with the. Is it like the pecan pie thing? What's that all about? I, Peca- like I don't remember that part. Okay. But like Carrie Fisher is in it. Oh yeah, yeah. She's Meg Ryan's friend. Weird. Yeah. Right. Cowabunga. Um, Cowabunga. Oh, mama mia. Let's keep talking. Let's keep booking. So Alma's quest that she sets off on is to discover who this Jacob Marcus character is. That leads her to try and find out who the original Alma from the book, The History of Love, was because she wants to know why the heck she was named Alma. And it might be a clue to finding out like more about her parents' relationship. So that's like where she goes. Um plot happens from there <laughs> okay so then to our third character this is timing out well um okay the so book the, this is the book the book within a book the book the history of love now let me read you oh sure a, yeah let me let me read you a uh, a little quote here and this is also i believe from the new york times review of this book from like 2005 but, yeah yeah but um as is so often the case what we are shown of the book within a book in the history of love is underwhelming. If the book within a book were really so terrific, the author would have written that book instead. Yeah. Do you think that's fair here? And do you think it's fair in general? I think it's fair in general. Yes, definitely every like work of fiction within a work of fiction where the author is like purposely sort of obscuring it from you and just like telling you about how people react to it. Definitely every one of those is overblown. Like it can't possibly actually be that way. But like I, I agree. I literally agree with you. And yet I don't care. (laughs) Like if a book is written well enough and the characters are good enough, this is like the actual book, not the one level inception deep book. Um, but if the actual book, if I care about what happens 
as long as they don't show me too much of whatever this is, like, I'm fine. It's okay. just this, like, I'm okay with that being a MacGuffin that moves the plot along. Mm-hmm. Or, or that characters are having emotional responses to. You run into weird, like, we always make the ref, like, there was that, we make references to, like, Studio 60, right? Where, like, 30 Rock Six. <laughs> Do we talk about <laughs> Studio 60 all the time? I don't. Well, I think about it. Um, <laughs> but the the thing with Studio 60 versus 30 Rock, because they like premiered in the same season, right? Was like right, yeah, yeah, yeah. one was about a funny show and one was a funny show. Right. Yes. Uh, and the funny show like and, and both had sh- like shows within shows. Yes. But in one, the point was that it was so stupid and terrible that it was funny. And in the other, it was that it was so funny and groundbreaking that it could never possibly be that. And it never was that good. Yeah. Uh, So with this, I I get like, I don't, I disagree with the premise that you shouldn't have a book within a book because it will always be underwhelming. I think I personally found the rest of History of Love uh engrossing enough and interesting enough to like lift up what parts of the book within a book don't work that said uh i totally vibe with some parts of it in ways that like especially 22 year old craig would have been totally into Mm -hmm. uh i was just a little i was a little more dramatic when i was 22 Sure. I mean, who who wasn't? Who wasn't? You know? So, like, uh, here's here's a really clear excerpt um, from later in the book. Uh, they're reading a section from the history of love called "The Birth of Feeling." Feelings are not as old as time. It began uh, just as there was a first instant when someone rubbed two sticks together to make a spark. There was a first time joy was felt, and a first time for sadness. For a while, new feelings were being invented all the time. Desire was born early, as was regret. When stubbornness was felt for the first time, it started a chain reaction, creating the feeling of resentment on the one hand and alienation and loneliness on the other. It might have been a certain counterclockwise movement of the hips that marked the birth of ecstasy, a bolt of lightning that caused the first feeling of awe. Like, that's that text doesn't really have a point... In a vacuum, it's sure it's charming. It is an interesting line of like kind of creationism, you know, or like myth making about feelings, which, mm-hmm. depending on what type of conversation you're having, is really interesting. Um, I don't know that you want to read a whole book that sounds like that because then you find yourself going, What's this book about? But as a like essay that that is a diversion that is also informing what these characters are feeling like that everybody who's in who encounters this book encounters it like during a first love or it's describing a first love or something like that so there's this i don't know there's this part that you know and leopold is the author even though his the authorship of the book is disputed um he's trying to get this across uh, and he was writing it when he was 17, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, I don't know. I like that part. There's another part called The Age of Silence that I want to find real quick. Ah, okay. 
Here we go. During the age of silence, people communicated more, not less. Uh, This is after he describes the idea that before there was spoken language, it was all hand gestures and other gestures. Basic survival demanded that the hands were almost never still, and so it was only during sleep that people were not saying something or, or other. No distinction was made between the gestures of language and the gestures of life. The labor of building a house, say, or preparing a meal was no less an expression than making the sign for I love you or I feel serious. Uh, and then there's he goes on and talks about how people might mistake certain gestures for things. These mistakes were heartbreaking, and yet, because people knew how easily they could happen, people, uh, because they didn't go around with the illusion that they understood perfectly the things other people said, they were used to interrupting each other to ask if they understood correctly. Sometimes these misunderstandings were even desirable, since they gave people a reason to say, forgive me, I was only scratching my nose, of course I know I've always been right to love you. So it's this, like, it's non-specific poetic essay writing is most of this fictional book. Okay. Um, I don't know. What is your response as you listen to that? Is it a thing that Andrew wants to read at all? It sounds a little saccharine for my yeah. taste, you know? Sh- like sure. Just a, just a little too on its sleeve about its emotions and stuff. Okay. Emotions are hard. <laughs> I know, friend. Emotions are hard. They are hard. Nobody likes having emotions. And I think (laughs) what I think to me, what might drive a person to engage with and then really respond to a work of fiction like this, were it real, is it gives you a language to talk about emotion. It gives you um, almost, as I said before, kind of some creation myth for that emotion so that you don't have to articulate it yourself, because that can be pretty tough. Um, and if you're sharing it with someone else, that's kind of a like, I think the world works this way. Do you think it works that way too? Like, are we compatible in that way? Um, mm-hmm. Are we? Go- I like that, but like, I do kind of like that idea that like, there isn't a distinction, but like gestures of action and doing can be on the same level as like things you say to a person. Because that's a thing we've talked about. When I freaked you out with love languages many moons ago. Don't like, still don't like it. I know. But like, we also talk about, I think this is a thing that's different for 22-year-old Craig and 30-year-old Craig is knowledge of how like doing stuff can be a more effective way to show someone like, love or affection than actually like just saying it Mm -hmm. because that can become a platitude that can be self-serving but like actually doing the thing that someone needs you to do is the work of love in a way that like romantic just kind of early romantic behavior doesn't know yet um i don't know it's it's i i would not read a full book of this I respond to it positively in the little drips and drabs that it comes out in the book. And I, maybe that's like maybe that's why it was constrained to little drips and drabs. Exactly. And I think there are one or two of them that don't work as well as even what I shared. There's one about like people carrying strings around so they don't lose the words they want to say. And there's one about a dude who's like made of glass or he mm-hmm. thinks he is. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be a humorous anecdote about a time that he puts a pincushion in his pants, but like 
the, I'm not quite <laughs> sure where the joke is. Like the joke never I, really like lands. that's the joke though, right? Like you put just the putting a pincushion in your pants in the first place. Yeah, hilarious. That that's a yeah sure. That's a zinger. Um, so if you if if someone's gonna come up to you on the street and they're gonna grab you and they're gonna be like, young man, why should I read the history of love by Nicole Krauss? Like, what would you? How would you respond to that? I would say that it is 2016, and you should read a book about um, people finding a way to survive through art and language and love. Ooh, boy. So there's a... Boy, howdy. Right? So there's an interview uh, that I read with her in The Atlantic, and they asked her about two of her books featuring Holocaust survivors. And she said that she doesn't write... She she wouldn't say that she's written about the Holocaust. She's the grandchild of people who've survived it. She's not writing their stories. She couldn't. But she's writing characters who have survived it or been affected by it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what interests her... She's not writing about the events, but she's interested in the response to catastrophic loss. Um, And I think this book does a really good job of making that feel very... Just where these characters come from and and the actions that they're taking because of it feel organic and not um, maudlin. Uh, There's a really moving passage where the guy who pretends to have written the history of love for several decades uh, has learned he's living in South America and he's learned about what's happened to his family in Europe. Um, He learned to live with the truth, not to accept it, but to live with it. It was like living with an elephant. His room was tiny and every morning he had to squeeze around the truth just to get to the bathroom to reach the armoire, to get a pair of underpants. He had to crawl under the truth, praying it wouldn't choose that moment to sit on his face. And it's just kind of like a little goofy metaphor, a little painful metaphor about living with that awful news and what that yeah. is. And I yeah. think as where we are right now, I I didn't know that about this book and I got into it and I was like, dang, I'm very glad I'm reading this book right now um, because of where 2016 is. But yeah, like that's a that's a that's a thing. It's yeah. Like, Sometimes songs or books or like other works of art affect you. You said that today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because of what they are or, or because of their like empirical quality, but because of who you were and, and when you were Mm -hmm. like your, your state of mind while reading them. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, that's like actually literally what this book is about also. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, like, I don't know, like so okay so here's one from my stupid life <laughs> okay <laughs> is there there are bits of Star Trek the Next Generation sure that are about like data and like why why is data like trying to understand humans and stuff and mm-hmm. like and Captain and he and Captain Picard are talking about it and like this might actually be from Star Trek Nemesis which super sucks <laughs> because that's like the I movie that is. helped kill the franchise for a while i think you're right because i did see that movie and i have not seen enough tng to hang with you so yeah i think this is from star trek nemesis so i apologize to everybody but okay so what it is is that data dies for some stupid reason 
And then Picard is explaining to a clone of Data why Data would take so expend so much time and energy trying to be human. And Picard says that like like to be human is to always try to be like better than you are. Mm-hmm. And Star Trek Nemesis is a sucky, is a sucky movie. <laughs> it suck. It sucks. It sucks eggs. It sucks on toast. It's not a good movie. But that like explanation of humanity, even though like we've kind of we've kind of disproven that sure lately, uh huh, is like I don't know that's that that sort of sums up the optimism of Star Trek for me, and it, it's it's I like it a lot, and it's stuck with me obviously sure to the point where I even tried to start dissociating it with the thing that it came from. <laughs> You've clearly forgotten it, yeah. God. Uh. And I think also this book, the characters are using the characters fib and characters lie and characters hide and reshape the truth. And Krauss is aware that the act of create of creating fiction has some of that woven into it. Um, But almost all of these characters are doing it. None of them are doing it in a way that's like nefarious. There's always an empathy for like, why they're why they're maybe even lying to themselves about the world around them um and there's a really powerful beat where leo admits to himself that before alma left for america when they said goodbye she told him she would never actually love him and uh he made himself forget that and you know pressed on to america despite it and i think that there's a very strong subtext of like that got him out like that self-deception that work of fiction kept him alive um and the book is exploring that and honoring that mm-hmm. um yeah it's a cool book i think there's also there's a whole other thing we could talk about that we don't have time for about like who you identify more with in the book. And I would be interested to hear from our listeners about that because Alma's like younger. She's also a woman. um, And that is a different perspective than Leo. Who's like this guy who's almost dead, just trying to be seen um, looking back on everything he's done. And I think Krauss kind of jumps back and forth between them pretty, pretty well, I would say. So, yeah, did we come up? Ooh, you had a good catchphrase just recently. I don't remember what it was. Mamma Mia. That wasn't that one. You said a thing like <laughs> that was whole cloth. If anybody heard any good catchphrases, like tell us. Um, they, they were all good. Like, how could you even pick? It's just like we assaulted you with catchphrases, and <laughs> I don't know how you could pick your favorite. It's like Sophie's Choice. Is there? That's actually a good catchphrase. Overdue. It's like Sophie's Choice. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're wrapping up here. I want to thank our listener and uh, lovely patron donor Jess uh, for recommending this book to us. Uh, I am promptly going to be sharing this one with Laura because I think she would actually really like it. So, if you're at all interested in this book, it's probably for you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have read it and have thoughts, you should send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You could send us messages at Facebook or Twitter at overduepod. Thanks to everybody who's reached out to us in the last week, especially as we were bombarding you with t-shirt notices. Um, we're going to keep bombarding you. Remember, yeah. 24 hours, bit.ly slash overdue shirts. Go there, get yours. 
if you know we if if we get the sense that people want to have them printed again like we will we will try but we can't say for sure when we'll be offering them again so yeah. if you want some we know like the i don't know the timing on it was like suboptimal and we did not we did not advertise it ahead of time as much as we would have liked but if you if you want them please do go bit.ly slash overdue shirts order yours and um yeah don't 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 miss out. Don't kick yourself for missing out because there's nothing we can do for you. <laughs> and don't be shy if you do miss out uh, and are like, I really wanted one. Like, let us know so and that we can you start know, building the case for the future. Yeah, and like we've already had a couple people. Like, like one of our Twitter followers was was asking why they did not have uh, women's sizes above a two X, and even like a two X in women's sizes is like nothing. Um, and and most of that's like cut cotton, of the shirt. It's cut of the shirt, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. And and Cotton Bureau has been like really great about answering those questions and like providing support for people. So so yeah, we're definitely listening. And if you want a shirt but can't buy it now for some reason, like we are we are keeping track of that and we'll keep it in mind going forward. So, great. Yeah. So I want to thank Melissa, Charlotte, Scott, Grace, Cindy, Jeremy, Mary Kate, Lola, Ricky, J Deep, Alexandra, uh, Mike, Melissa, Mrs. Trufithic. I got it, I think. Lee, Barbara, Melissa, Vanessa, Barbara, Dave, Brittany, Stephen, Tessa, Camille, Taylor, Jennifer, Erica, Valerie, Melissa, Catherine, Natalie. Thank you all for reaching out on social media. Andrew, if they have more questions <laughs> or more, they want to know more about the show, where should they go? Why did you turn into an old man? I just need to be seen. <laughs> you just need to be seen. <laughs> if you need to be seen, you can email us at OverduePod. I said that <laughs> part. Wait. Go to the website. I'm just saying me. again, if you need to see us, you can go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Um, up there, we've got links to iTunes and Stitcher and RSS. Those are all the ways you can subscribe to the show. Uh, Google Play as well. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because that helps us rise in iTunes' cold, unfeeling, algorithmical rating system. And it makes us feel good. Um, you can find Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We need to talk out December's schedule, but we should have that posted up to the site soon. Um, we also have links to HeadGum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast host, um, our Patreon project, which you can use to uh, support our cause. Um, is there anything else up there that people need to be aware of? I don't I don't know what I'm going to be reading next week, but we will put that out on Twitter and Facebook as soon as we know. So, yeah, yeah, expect a full slate of December in the next few days. And mm. also just a general thanks to our online community. You guys have been great in the last few weeks. And uh, some of you have been interacting with us on Twitter aside from podcast Twitter about the world at large. Um, yeah, and, and we just, got a really yeah. like a lot of a lot of people gave us great feedback about our election episode, and we're we are glad for those of you who we helped. We are glad that we could do that. Um, for the couple of you we heard from who we didn't help, like we hope you're still listening. Like we don't we want to be <laughs> we want to be a place where everyone feels included and everyone feels safe. So like even if you don't necessarily agree with us politically, we hope we can find common ground and keep communicating because that's like going to be so so important going forward that's it i yeah bazinga bazinga um all right everybody time to make the donuts mama mia that's a spicy meatball not the, not mama. the mama craig attack uh what was the other one there were some other ones and but above all above all the original catchphrase try to be happy <laughs>
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>